Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. Good morning. Good morning. So if you're bundled up when it's 60 degrees, what do you do when it's in the 40s? What do you do? Do you have just a whole nother layer? You poor Californians. I'll tell you what, you guys are just, it's, it's tough. It's tough to be you. Um, welcome. We're thrilled you're with us. My name is Mike. Uh, this is a church community called Vox, which is Latin for voice. Uh, we are built on uh, three convictions we talk about all the time. First, we believe the church is called to love and serve the world, not, in dis- not to sit in judgment of it. We also think that the church is to orient itself uh, to do whatever it can to capture the hearts and the minds of the next generation. Uh, and we believe the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. And so um, there are two ways that we manifest that uh, value. Uh, first is we take questions, and, and the questions we get are doozies. Um, and they reflect uh, what people texted in last week. I don't, I don't look at them other than just to pick which ones we're going to do. I don't study them or prepare for them. Um, uh, and, you know, we can never do them justice, but we think it's very powerful to put them on the screen. Um, and then uh, uh, Casey and Stephanie are going to share a bit of their story. Uh, so that's how we're going to start this morning. We're thrilled you're with us. If you want to find out more about us, if you're new, you can go to voxoc.com and uh, find out more. So questions. This is the number to text in. Your lights are on. Blue Scion. Your lights are on, guys. Come on. Although, although it's impressive you put your lights on. I mean, most Californians just think, well, it's daytime. Um, all right. Text your questions. That's the number. Question, uh, question number one. Can you repeat the difference between judgment and discernment? We, we were talking a lot about judgment last week. Uh, and uh, the difference is, uh, at least the way I see it, the difference is this. Judgment, in the way that Jesus uses the term, is it's working from an external uh, vision of somebody, I'm watching their behavior, to now making a judgment about their inside and about their worthiness or their identity or their place in the kingdom. That is absolutely prohibited. So judgment, the word judgment is crino, and it means to categorize or to separate. Like It's where we get the word critic. So there's a bad judgment, which is the separation of people into different groups, redeemable, unredeemable, forgiven, not, never forgiven, you know, that kind of thing. But there is the good kind of judgment that, that I use the word uh, discernment to describe that is very much a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And discernment is the separation of behaviors and, and uh, thoughts and patterns of speech into those that are aligned with the kingdom and those that are opposed to the kingdom. It's, it's not the separation of people, but it's that way of life is not congruent with God's work in the world. That way of talking isn't congruent with God's work in the world. And Paul does this all the time. Okay, that's the difference in a nutshell. Next question. Jesus walked around healing people. Are people still healed in this same way today? Yes. If so, how come I don't often see it? So the answer is yes. God still heals people all the time. The reason often we don't see it is first, we have whole branches of Christian theology that tell us God doesn't do that today. So, uh, so if you've been raised in that, you're never going to ask for it. You're never going to expect it. You're never going to posture yourself to be part of something like that. 
Even if you believe he does, many of us are, are far too timid to actually pray for someone's healing. And we're, we just kind of assume, ah, God will say no, so we kind of hedge our bets a little bit where the scriptures, so, God so clearly listens to audacious prayer. And the third reason I think that we don't see it a lot is because we are surrounded by medical technology. People in the third world literally, or the two-thirds world as, as it's better said, uh, literally often a cry out to Jesus is the only option. And so I believe that God doesn't do miracles just to feed the curiosity of his people when they're surrounded by technology that the vast majority of the human beings who have ever lived on the planet have not had, right? I think God does some of his best stuff when he's wooing and wooing people and demonstrating his power, authority, and presence to people who are not yet in his kingdom. Third, so many more questions. While we are reviewing judgment and Jesus' abhorrence for hypocrisy and judgmental behavior, it brings to mind our current social climate. Oh, really? All too many of us have been hurt by the church slash Christians within the church. Yep. How do we persevere when such judgment is directed at us, and how do we respond in love to the hateful hypocrites within our Christian community? Whoa. Now here is the wonderful thing about judgment. Are you ready? The people I love to judge most are the judgers. And in so doing, I become one of them. Do you see that? So particularly among those of us who consider ourselves woke to the social realities around us, right? We, it is very, very easy to judge those who are not. So Trump supporters are judging the women that march, the women that marched are judging the Trump. So, I mean, I, mean I, I couldn't, social media was a mess yesterday. And all it was, was, was the judgment, right, rendered by opposing groups. And that judgment kills. So, the questioner is right. Many of us have had really tough experiences in the Christian community. How do we respond? Well, there, there is absolutely, absolutely no question that the ultimate sense of response has to be forgiveness, has to be maybe a separation from forgiveness. We did a whole podcast on forgiveness. That does not mean that, that you allow people to still hurt you. That does not mean you don't put boundaries in place. But ultimately, if, unless we're going to be consumed by the same sins we condemn in others, we have to move on from the judgment game. And I know that's so easy to say and so hard to do. That is an entirely different sermon topic. Make sense? Oh, so good. Next. If God is saying that the expected people, Christians, are to be judged the harshest, then what is the motivation to be a Christian? <laughs> and also, as a Christian, how do you know you are living righteously? Question for my 13-year-old niece. Okay, 13-year-olds, that's awesome. Those are great questions. First of all, why should you become a Christian? Well, I don't think you should become a Christian. I think you should follow Jesus. And very often that's a different thing. I think Jesus is the most beautiful, magnificent person that has ever walked the face of the earth. I believe that Jesus reveals to us the heart of our creator. I think Jesus is magnificent. And I would do anything to be part of his movement, to get to know him and to become like him. But being part of the family means that I get looked at first. In the same way, your parents don't go around judging other people's kids. They look and have expectations for you that are different from all the other kids that are not part of your family. Would you rather give up being a part of your family in order to escape those expectations? Of course not. 
That's just what comes with being part of the family. So why follow Jesus? Well, he's wonderful. And the judgment that Jesus gives isn't the judgment that comes in the form of the vindictive setting us aside. It's the form of, the scripture says, it's the, the, it's the parental love and discipline that comes in the same way parents discipline their earthly kids. That's the idea. Great question. How do we know if we're living righteously? Simple. The fruit of your life will always show what kind of life you're living. It doesn't matter how many religious things you're doing. It doesn't matter how successful you are in school. It doesn't matter how many likes you have on Instagram. What matters is the fruit that's being produced. And the fruit that's being produced is really, it's, it's kind of tough to measure. It's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience and it's kindness and it's gentleness. So we can never fully judge a snapshot of someone's life. We have to judge the trajectory of someone's life to see if that fruit is becoming more apparent. 13-year-old, killing it. Next. My goodness, I, it's so hard to answer these. I've wanted to be a teacher of the Word since probably I decided to become a Christian 17 years ago. I'm at the place where I'm finally going to be teaching a regular Bible study starting this week, and I'm also considering starting a seminary this year to pursue being a pastor. But now I have more questions than ever, <laughs> and I'm terrified to teach something I'm questioning so much, let alone spend 50K on an MDiv. I absolutely love Jesus and all he represents. I just don't know what to do with the rest of the Bible. Out of all the religions in the world and throughout history, what makes you so sure we have the truth? How do you preach with such confidence in the midst of, of such controversies over inspiration, preservation, authorship, and divine revelation? Is it just our human nature that wants to believe all things end well? So we cling to Jesus because we'll make all things new? Is it wish fulfillment, in other words? How about that for a question? Boy, how do you answer that in 30 seconds? Um, if my confidence were in the Bible, I'd have all kinds of questions too. My confidence is in the God revealed in Jesus, who I assume, because all communication is contextual, communicated to us enough of what God wanted us to know so that we can have confidence in the kind of God God is and the kind of life God wants. N.T. Wright wrote a phenomenal book, and you could say that about any of his books, but it was called The Last Word, at least the first edition was called The Last Word, and it was about the difference between trusting the Bible or trusting the God behind the Bible. Far too many of us base our faith on the Bible, on the book. And when you're in seminary and you realize, oh, there are all these textual variations and all oh, there are these debates about whether or not Paul wrote Ephesians and there's these debates about uh, the synoptic problems and, and the inconsistencies in the gospel accounts and, and oh my goodness, if your faith is just in the, the perfection of the Bible, well, you're going to get wrecked. If your faith is in the character of the God revealed in Jesus, I'm okay with all those questions. I just try to preach what I know. And what I know is Jesus is beautiful. All the other stuff, I have guesses and opinions and thoughts, but those things don't unsettle me the way they used to. Now that is worthy of a much longer answer, particularly how do you believe it's true? Well, that's a great question. All right, hopefully last one next. Oh. 
So Jesus is pretty clear what he wants us to be doing. Yep, as he laid out last week, this past election cycle has proven that the reading comprehension in America must be lower than everyone thinks because his word is obviously not resonating loudly enough. Where is the disconnect with most Bible readers? Well, they either don't read or all, all they do is read. The Bible's never a book to be read, it's a book to be lived, right? We all know this. So, we can read all about loving your enemies, but no one takes that part seriously, right? We can read all about blessing those who persecute you, but nobody takes that seriously, right? I mean, Francis Chan has this great illustration about a kid who plays Simon Says. So Simon Says, touch your head. We touch our head. Simon Says... Rub your belly. Two hands for this one. We touch our, you know, rub our belly. We play a different game when we, when we come to Jesus Says. When we come to Jesus Says, we memorize it, we study it, we think about it, its original language, but we don't do it. And so one of the things I say that gets me in trouble sometimes is many of us don't need more Bible study. We need just to do the Bible we know. And then the rest of it would open up. Boom. All right, so I hate you guys. <laughs> Dang it, it's always so much work. Ah, oh, the phenomenal, phenomenal questions. And why do we do them? Not because the answers are great, but because they're worth asking. And we want to be a community that talks about the real things that are going on in our world and in our minds and in our lives. So I'm always so proud that we do this. Another thing that we do that I love is I love that we share stories about the hardships, not just the pretty stuff of following Jesus. And so I want to invite uh, Casey and Stephanie Olson out. Say hello to them. One of our first couple stories. Yes, here we are. Here we are. Hey, now. Jennifer Lawrence. Yes. All right, now. These guys are amazing, um, and uh, they've got an interesting... Interesting set of circumstances they've been walking, so why don't you take it away? Check, check, one, two. All right. You've always wanted to do that, huh? I have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, uh, good morning, moms. As Mike said, my name is Casey, and this is my lovely, beautiful, and much better half, Stephanie. All of that's assumed and understood, my friend. You don't even have to say it. <laughs> we all saw that. We all saw that instantly the moment you walked out. My father-in-law. Oh, okay, 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 all right, well, then there's points, okay, got it, got it. You're doing business right now, I got it. <laughs> so, uh, quick, I mean, real quick background, we were both raised in Christian families, amazing parents, father-in-law's in Yep, in. yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, and while there are a lot of things that, you know, we've struggled with over the years, uh, personally, um, we thought we'd take this opportunity to share something that was kind of our biggest struggle uh, as a couple. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over to Stephanie. Hi. Sorry, I'm going to read. Um, okay, we got married in November of 2006 and decided to start a family in May of 2009. We figured it'd be easy to get pregnant, but it just wasn't happening. In May of 2010, I still wasn't pregnant, and we were getting discouraged. We decided to go to the doctor to see what was going on, and we were diagnosed with unexplained infertility, meaning that there's nothing wrong with us, but that we just couldn't conceive a baby. The, pretty much the most annoying diagnosis, since there's nothing, nothing's wrong. Um, it was really tough to get that news. 
Uh, we wanted something to be wrong so that we knew how to fix it, but we were left in the unknown. After another year of fertility treatments and suffering many side effects from the fertility medications, I started falling into a pretty deep depression. I didn't want to see my closest friends and felt extremely anxious about everything. I remember my sister announcing that she was pregnant with her second child in the midst of my depression, and I had a really, really hard time handling that. I even had thoughts of hurting myself. At that point, I knew I needed help. I was put on antidepressants, and things definitely turned around. Um, the pain of not having a child that I felt every day wasn't taken away, but it w I was on a much better path. So uh, after about a year of going through this, um, I basically was at a point where I was like, I had to go to Steph, this, this is enough. And thankfully, she was on the same page as well. Um, so we decided to end any sort of further treatments to try and conceive biologically. Um, for me personally, I've always prided myself on being able to handle any situation the world can kind of throw at me. Um, I'm a pretty steady guy, but this one definitely rocked me at my foundation. Um, in particular, growing up in a Christian family, kind of doing the right things in life, at least so I thought, you know, to please God. It was like, why is God punishing us for this situation when we really haven't, you know, done anything wrong? That was my biggest challenge. I remember being in church and hearing about what our church was doing to help a village in Africa. Um, they showed a video, and I felt a physical touch. It was the first time God had you know, given me that physical touch on my heart, and it was saying um, that adoption was what he had planned for our family. Uh, Mark 5.34 says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Um, I went from desperately wanting to get pregnant one day to not wanting to get pregnant at all the next. God completely changed my heart, and I was thrilled to start the adoption process. We became a certified family, and we're ready for a birth mother to choose us to adopt her baby. Each month that passed while we waited was harder than the one before. All right, so uh, after about 10 months, um, we were matched, finally, with a, a birth mother named Tracy, who was uh, 15 years old at the time. So you might hear pregnant, 15 years old, and think, well, there's you know, another statistic, right? Um, but she was an intelligent, motivated, and uh, strong Christian girl with a great head on her shoulders. Um, Sydney, our daughter, was born on April 7, 2012. We got to meet her hours after she was uh, born, and we were able to bring her home on Easter Sunday. Um, her birth mother said that she was born between the two most important days of the year, Good Friday and Easter. Although we thought our family was complete after Sydney, God had other plans for us and totally shocked us with a pregnancy four years later. Um, I never thought I would experience pregnancy, but God fulfilled the former desire, and our son Cameron was born this past June. You've probably seen him on my chest while I'm greeting you in the morning. <laughs> um, we're so grateful for how God wrote our family's story. We now know that we weren't getting pregnant because we were meant to be Sydney's parents and experience the gift of adoption. We've learned so much about what is important in life and how to depend on each other, and more importantly, God, through our infertility and adoption journey. 
Those years of heartache, doubt, anger, and depression were truly a gift. We grew by leaps and bounds in our marriage and relationship with God. We're also grateful that we found a church that shares the same core values that align with our adoption story. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. Um, obviously, you know, having five minutes, it's a challenge to try and, now we're going on six minutes, sorry, Mike. <laughs> uh, but we love talking about this, even though it was a, a challenging part of our story. Uh, as you know, you could see from what Steph said, it's turned into one of the biggest blessings in our life. We still have a ton of things that we struggle with. I love, you know, Mike, I'm the biggest sinner in the room, man. No, no, no way. No way. Nope. Um, I'll take you down right now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're part of the host team. We love getting to meet, you know, there's a lot of people here, but we try and do our best to meet everyone. And if you have anything else, you know, questions about adoption, we love talking about it. Um, so please stop by, say hello. Hey, Amen. Thank you so much, buddy. Great job. <laughs> Great job. Thank you for So, no, the, we think that is absolutely beautiful. And, um, and, and it, just, it just needs to be said um, that it's easy to be anti-abortion, harder to be pro-life. Pro-life is when you're willing to inconvenience your family uh, for the privilege of allowing another child in. Um, and agreed. Agreed. I'm getting an amen from the infant row. And it just needs to be said, if ever you or someone you know is pregnant in an unwanted pregnancy, and they are tempted to, uh, to have an abortion uh, because they, they just can't picture another opportunity or another option, please know that the Eries would be glad to adopt that child if they will keep it to term, that I, several other families would love that opportunity. We want to be that kind of community. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're huge fans. We've got several families doing amazing work from the foster care system, and it's so hard. So we want to be that kind of community, guys. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the last couple of days have been kind of weird. Uh, there have been a couple of things going on, but we have football today, so it's better. Um, no, listen, it, the, the, the toxic stew that is America right now is in desperate need of peacekeepers. And worship, we have far, of a, we have far too low a view of what we do when we're singing, because we just think it's singing. In the Bible, worship is a political act. Because you are... You are declaring the worth of something that's far bigger, better, and more beautiful than what Trump or not Trump represents. And in these days, it's not enough, not enough, just to either be engaged or to be silent. We, the, the hearts of Jesus followers need to be constantly realigned politically to the kingship of Jesus and then engage in the other conversations. So when we sing, I, I often just am like, well, do I like this song or not like this song? Boy, that's irrelevant. This is a politically subversive act we're about to do. Please, please try that thought on as we do this. This is, this is the undercutting of every other claimant to ultimate authority over our lives. Do you understand that? 
This is the declaration that American citizenship is secondary to kingdom citizenship. And that allegiance to Jesus forces and radicalizes every other allegiance. That's what we do here. So, uh, for that reason, let's stand during the first one. Sit, if you'd like, during the rest. Um, but let's stand now. Let's stand up together. Let's do that together. After a speech like that, you can't just sit there. That was a good speech. I didn't even know I was going to say that. That was good. Fantastic. It's a tight ship, ladies and gentlemen. It's a tight. We plan it to the minute. Oh, Andy Bear, thank you. That was really good. Yep, I agree. Brothers and sisters, uh, let's do a little Bible, shall we? If you're new here, um, our assumption is that there are, there are folks who are listening to us who don't buy this, who have questions about this or reservations about this. We're thrilled that you're here. We put everything up on the screen so you can follow along. For those, for those of us that bring a Bible, uh, we are in the middle of a, a conversation on John 3.16, and we're hovering over the idea of perishing in this most famous of verses. And, um, and, and so we've been examining it by contrasting, next slide, these two uh, diagrams you are now overly familiar with. The standard, uh, the standard bill of goods we've been sold is that we live on earth, we face judgment, and then we spend forever in either heaven or hell. The biblical story, of course, is a bit more complex than that. It's the creation of heaven and earth. That hell is not the counterpart of heaven. Uh, hell is something else we're going to be talking about. Fall, uh, excuse me, the, the, the creation of heaven and earth as they're united and joined. There is uh, angelic and creaturely rebellion that introduces some sort of fracture between the heavens and the earth. And it requires judgment. And so we've been talking about judgment now for, I think this is our third week. We talked first about the, what was it? It was the why of judgment, yes. And we were arguing, I know, it's so profound, I forget. Um, and I was the one that taught it. Uh, <laughs> the judgment's actually good news. It's the purification of evil from the world and the way that a, a parent would want to purify their child of cancer. This is actually, for those of us that shelter beside Jesus, this is good news. And for those of us, even the most hardened, strident, atheistic, skeptic, still knows there's something wrong with the place. And so um, we would talk about the why. We talked about the who last week and the idea that judgment begins with the house and people of God. That when Jesus was here, it was the Jewish temple that he went into and overturned tables. And it wasn't the Roman temples, the pagan temples. And that the church's posture is to realize we're the biggest sinners in, in the world, right? We're the biggest sinners in society. And, and to to, as we've discussed, to practice discernment in a context like this, and to realize, of course, that if Jesus were here, he'd have his harshest words for us. He hates hypocrisy as much as we all do. Uh, and, uh, and so this week, we want to talk about the how of judgment. How does God judge? And this, I think, will be, uh, this will raise all sorts of interesting questions that Andy will have to answer next week. Uh, go, if you would, to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. And um, and so we're going to kind of meander around a little bit, uh, making, I think, a point that isn't often considered when, it, when we talk about judgment. So God creates human persons in Genesis 1. Genesis 2, he nestles these persons into a garden called Eden, and, uh, and they are given stuff to do. Not only that, there's one restriction given, and we read about that restriction in Genesis 2, verse uh, 16. 
The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly what? You will certainly what? Die. So death was the result of rebellion, of trespass, or in the Bible's language, of sin. In fact, Paul will put it this way in Romans. The wages of sin is what? Death. Sin, any sin, is separation from God. Any sin leads to death. Seth, 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 my son, death, I don't know where Seth came from. Death is the inevitable consequence of sin. In fact, James puts it this way. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? Death. So he uses this, this pregnancy metaphor. Right? Desire is conceived, and that inevitably leads to birth of what? Sin. Birth, when it matures, leads inevitably to what? Death. It's not like God is imposing a death sentence on everybody. It's just, no, if you sin, it leads to death. End of story, that's the stream. If you go that direction, you separate yourself from the God of life, it inevitably, naturally, unequivocally, and inevitably leads to death. That's just the way it works. So Jesus will put it this way. Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only if you find it. Now, two weeks from now, we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna have a field day with the idea that what's juxtaposed here is eternal life and death, not eternal life and eternal conscious torment. Okay, so we'll, we'll have a field day with that. But what I, want you to show, what I want you to see is when we talk about judgment, you and I normally have in view God smiting. Have you ever seen the Far Side cartoon? I should have, I should have pulled it up for, uh, for this where, do you guys know the Far Side at all? Gary Larson back in the day? Okay, so he has a picture of the grandpa God who's watching a computer monitor of just this kind of average Joe Schmo walking down the road. And there's a, there's a piano that's being moved up an apartment building, and it's hanging by a rope. And right under, right as the, this just average guy is kind of walking under the piano, God has his finger over a button, a red, big red button called smite. And it's just like he's ready to do it. And when we think about God's judgment, that's typically what we think about. It's, it's the poor guy that when the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was a bit wobbly, he reaches out to steady it and he gets zapped. Right? I mean, or, or it's the rebellion against Moses, and then the ground opens up and swallows, or it's the, the venomous plague that strikes out. I mean, that's what we think of when we think of judgment. But there is a far more systematic and organic teaching in the scriptures about what judgment entails. And, and it's basically this judgment is simply allowing the natural consequences of sin to run their course. God doesn't have to do anything external. It's just, 
if you sin, there will be death. End of story. It's not like God has to do anything. It's like, if I want to drop a ball, I don't have to ask gravity to do its work, correct? I just let go. And in the Scriptures, often judgment comes in a package that's totally unexpected. Namely, the broad road that leads to destruction is deceptive, and so it never feels like destruction when you're in the middle of it. But if you get on that road, God doesn't have to do anything. It will naturally lead to destruction. It's like my, my sweet dad, my sweet, sweet dad, had cancer, smoked for 40 years. Why is God doing this to me? It's the alcoholic that wonders why they got cirrhosis of liver. Right? It's like, well, this isn't God smiting you. Sin carries its own punishment. That's our point for this morning. Sin carries its own destruction. You don't, God doesn't have to do anything external. There's no smite button needed. If you step into the broad path, it goes to destruction. If you sin, it goes to death. It's inevitable. It's natural. God doesn't have to smite anybody to do it. All right, that's interesting. Next slide. In fact, now, I'm no Hebrew scholar, so Matt, don't mess with me. Okay, I always take, you could say not ever to mention your name, but you're a New Testament professor, and I love you, and you sit in the back, which is a very poor model for other people. <clears throat> One scholar put it this way. The Hebrew words for wickedness, sin, trespass, and corruption are the same root words used to describe the effects of those sins. In other words, to the Jewish mind, it wasn't like God was up there smiting, although he certainly did discipline Israel under the Old Covenant. But the, the nature of rebellion itself carried within it its own seeds of destruction. It's not like God had to, like we have a judicial worldview in, in America. You sin, and it's a crime, and somebody externally levels punishment, right? For the Jews, punishment was built into the sin. Are you, is, is this making sense? Eh, okay. And even the Hebrew words that were used for different variations of the word sin are also used to describe the effects of the sin. As natural, in the same way that pregnancy leads to childbirth and childbirth leads to growth and maturity, in that same way, sin leads to its consequences. God doesn't have to impose anything externally. It's just the way that it is. In fact, the Bible is full of this imagery. It's called the ricochet effect or the boomerang effect. Next. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever reaps to please their flesh, and flesh is always shorthand for living life apart from the lordship of God. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. I mean, that's just, God doesn't have to do anything. It just happens. Right? Right? Yes? Matt? Whoever sows to, nope, back. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Notice, eternal life and destruction are juxtaposed there again. Well, isn't that interesting? 
Ooh, that's interesting. Now, am I overmaking the point? You bet. Any of you who know an addict or have been an addict, you know exactly what this is. Sin is its own reward. The broad road feels great. Does it feel like destruction? It's only after you've lost your house to the gambling addiction, or you've lost the marriage to the porn addiction, or you've lost your health you know, to the nicotine addiction that you realize, oh my goodness, this was the natural and inevitable consequence of the steps and behaviors I was choosing. It's just built into the moral fabric of the universe. You reap what you sow. And this, to me, is the far more terrifying form of judgment than the smite button. Because the smite button in the Old Testament was part of the covenant God made with his people. Does God discipline us as his children? Yes, absolutely, but that's not the smite button. This, this is a form of judgment we hardly ever talk about. And it's all over the scriptures. Next. Hosea 8, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. It's a boomerang. Whatever sin you put out into the world will come back to you. And it usually comes back bigger. Next. Habakkuk. Come on. When was the last time you even heard the word Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, I don't, I don't know which is, Matt? The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm what? You! Next. I mean, here's the famous one. Do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use, it boomerangs on you, right? See, this is terrifying to me. Because I'm like, hey, Jesus took care of the smite button, right? We're good, right? We're good, right? But this is the form of judgment. I'm like, oh, whoa. This is the one I, I, I don't, I'm not awake to. Next. Put your sword back in its place. Remember, Jesus was yelling at Peter. For all who draw the sword will die by it. You put violence out, violence is going to come back. Next. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they themselves have dug. The trouble they cause recoils on them. This is the way, so this is one expression of God's judgment. You reap what you sow. Now, I know this is great news, it's so fun. But here's the thing. It has to get a little darker first. There are two pictures of how this works in the Bible that are totally terrifying to me. And, And the first one comes from the book of Psalms, 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. So so what do the other gods worship? Well, they worship statues. They worship icons, and those are just metal things or wood things. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, and they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They're just figures. And then verse 18 is the scary one. Those who make them, what? What? will be like them. 
In other words, and this is taught all over the, the scriptures, you become like whatever it is that you worship. You worship money, you become filled with greed. You worship sex, you become filled with lust. You worship power, you become filled with control. You worship control, you become filled with anger. Right? You worship Jesus, you become Christ-like. Whatever it is that you declare worthy with your life, not just your words, will gradually bring you under its power. It's another way of reaping and sowing. Or, and this is even the more terrifying one to me. Next. In Romans, now notice this. Wrath of God. The wrath of God is, is that present tense or past tense? That seems like present tense to me. It's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Next. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that all people are without excuse. Now notice, now this is a part of a huge tirade Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1. But he says the following phrase three times. Next. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them, what's it say? Over. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them what? Next. 28. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. See, brothers and sisters, we misunderstand the judgment of God. We think God's judgment is, oh my goodness, uh, she got pregnant. Oh my goodness, I got caught. I tell you, that is God's mercy. When God intervenes in the path of destruction to say, hey, hey, this is where this thing's going. That's his kindness. His judgment is found exactly when he does not intervene. And he lets us have what we want. That's what it means to be given over. You, you step into the stream that leads to destruction. It's not like God's smiting you. See, if we have a, it's totally flipped upside down. This isn't the smiting God. This is the God who allows the natural consequences of rebellion to take their toll. And that is an expression of his wrath. So we sit, and we're with a computer, and we're like, oh, okay, porn doesn't hurt anybody. That cherishing of adultery in my heart, that doesn't hurt anybody. That little bit of greed and hoarding, well, that doesn't hurt anybody. Right? His mercy is found when that whole thing gets interrupted, his judgment is found when he just simply says, okay, have it your way. And to me, that is the far more terrifying picture. In the Bible, sin isn't static. It's always demanding more. I think of C.S. Lewis, right, in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember Edmund? If you're not familiar with this story, it's four British school children get transported into a magical land. Animals are talking, and there's this great white witch who pretends to be Edmund. What? Did you disagree with that assessment of? No. Have you ever read it? Okay. 
Don't talk to each other while I'm talking. This is very disrespectful that you would have any ideas other than mine. So this white witch, you know the story, a lot of you, befriends Edmund, and, and, and she says to Edmund, you know, what would you like? And he asks for a candy, Turkish Delight. I didn't know what that was until I went to Turkey, and there's candy there called Turkish Delight. And she bewitches it in the most insidious fashion imaginable. She makes it so that that's all he craves. And that the more he eats, oh, this is, this is, this is prison. The more he eats, the hungrier he gets. Have you ever been caught in something like that? Where the more you do it, the more you need it? The more you give in, the more lonely and alienated you become. In that moment, it satisfies, but it, it, it actually hollows you out just a little bit more each time. See, as Jesus followers, a lot of us are like, yeah, yeah, okay, cross, sin, taken care of, forgiven, awesome. So punishment's taken care of, right? Wrath's good, right? No. There's this holiness thing that God wants so much for us. Why? Because sin never stays small. And so we don't do this out of legalism. We don't do this to try to show God we're worthy. God invites us to flourish as human persons. And so there are two roads, one that leads to life and the other that leads inevitably to destruction. And what's the wrath of God? The wrath of God is when he allows the destruction to take its course. Now, what do you think of this? This is the non-rhetorical part of our program this morning. What do you think of this? Self-reflective? Oh, yeah. You bet. What do you think of this? Free will is sometimes scary? You bet. You bet. There's this great picture in uh, a book called The Brothers Karamazov where... God is put on trial by a cardinal in the Catholic Church. And the cardinal accuses God of unfairly giving us the burden of free will. It would have just been so much better off had you not done that. So yeah, I find that image just, yep, I totally get that. Any other thoughts? If you're saying it's my fault, I'm not sinning, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> Thankfully, that's not the only factor, correct? Because Dallas Willard talks about this thing called sin management, and very often, very often, the gospel of Jesus is reduced to, we'll just stop sinning. That's like raising a child by saying, hey, your only goal as my child is to not go to prison. Is that a vision for their life and flourishing? Well, no. So it's like, hey, hey, Christian, just stop sinning. Well, no, but it's, hey, Christian, when we talk about the judgment of God, we have a very narrow definition in view where it's like, you're so unfair. It seems so arbitrary. But there's this whole other swath where it's, you step into that stream, well, that's where the stream goes. 
right? So to me, it's, um, it's a humbling thing to recognize that there have been times God has interrupted me when I was heading in the wrong places. And initially, I viewed those as judgments. Now, oh my goodness, I see that as kindness and proof of his love. So I'm trying to flip this whole thing backwards to say, well, what we consider judgment very often, that's, that's rescue. God is just far better than we think. He's not up there smiting. Rescue. Any other thoughts? It's easier to think God is smiting? Yes. Yes. Well, what was the question when you guys were struggling with infertility? God, why are you doing this? Look at what we've done. Right? We've been good people. Right? Easy to believe God is good when it's good. But isn't that, it's, it's, there is this sense that we just want to shake our fist and blame him. And, and certainly, I mean, I, if God wants to smite, God can smite. But I just don't see that as the predominant picture of wrath in the New Testament. Great point. Now, yep. Oh, I love that voice. I love that voice. Right? And that's why we're infertile. So uh, it's because I'm, I'm sinning somehow. And God is there saying, well, this is because you're, you're sinning. So I love what you're saying, but it could be... Totally abuse. Take us to dark places. Yes. Yeah. Man, that is such a good point. You know what? You should teach at a, at a Bible college. <laughs> <sighs> so, the plus side of understanding this is... To realize what we do matters. Yes, we're under grace. Yes, the penalty of sin has been paid for. But what we do and how we live, all of that still matters. They're, Christians can find themselves in prisons of their own making, right? The downside of this, and I'm so glad you brought it up, is that you can turn this into a formula and assume that everything that's happening to you is just the boomerang of something that you've done earlier. Right? Right? So I'm infertile because, and this is what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, or at least not all of them perhaps, but there was a, a big strain of teaching that said if, if you had some sort of disability, if you had some sort of, um, some sort of uh, uh, something wrong in your family, it was because you'd sinned. Now, we are forbidden from ever making that moral calculus. We are absolutely forbidden from doing that. In fact, Jesus has such a robust view of freedom that often he attributes work to the enemy. Often he will, he will simply say, uh, this is happening uh, so that the work of God may be displayed in your life. But he never once goes around and says, yeah, God's doing this because of you. So do you see the tension that's at work here? On the one hand... We recognize there is this path that leads to destruction. There is a sowing and a reaping that, that plays out. But on the other hand, 
we can never take that to mean that one individual instance of suffering is the result of something else. No, there are other free agents in the world that sow all kinds of evil and chaos in the world. Make sense? So glad you brought that up. Bald guys rule. Now, now, part of why we take the Lord's Supper every week is to shelter, it's the reminder for those of us that shelter in King Jesus that our sin does never have the last word. That, that it's not about sin management and that it's, if it's just up to me to conquer sinning, I'm done. It's not that even remotely. This is by grace through faith that we are rescued and saved. I just want, brothers and sisters, hear this. I just want to open you up to the possibility that what often feels like judgment to you is rescue. What often feels like God's cursing in the long view can turn out to be blessing. And that we dare not resort to the calculus that was so prevalent in the book of Job. Right? That if you're a good person, good things will always happen. And if you're a bad person, bad things will always happen. It just doesn't always work that way. So we're going to take the bread and the cup together, my brothers and my sisters. In recognition of the grace that comes to us in King Jesus, in recognition of the gift of salvation and life that is found in King Jesus, and that even the worst things that we find ourselves into, those things don't have the final say over us in King Jesus. So the tables are always open, gluten-free over there, folks will be available to pray, participation boxes around the doors. But the biggest thing is this. For those of us who follow Jesus, who are wrestling through huge questions, of judgment. Judgment is attached to what you see God as being like. And so we're so we're working so hard to try to demonstrate God is far more beautiful than we think. So this, the bread and the cup, is the picture, the very heart of God towards you. That when Jesus comes into Jerusalem knowing it's to be judged, what's he do? He weeps. And that God isn't up there with the smite button, but God over those of us who find ourselves locked up in prisons of our own making. And so I want to pray for us and then we'll worship together. God, thank you so very much for your blessing, your kindness. It is your kindness that leads us to reorient our lives, to recognize, God, where we fall short the grace, the forgiveness that empower us to move and continue to keep moving towards you. And so, Father, we take the bread and we take the cup today as an act of joyful obedience in recognition that it is grace, in recognition, God, that we are called to continually orient our lives around you. And, Father, I do pray that there would be a deep sense of conviction where there needs to be conviction and hope where there needs to be hope. Comfort where there needs to be comfort. Walk among us, God, and shape us to be more and more like you. We bless you and we love you. Amen. Thank you. Go ahead and stand, my brothers and sisters. Let's get you home to build your arcs. And uh, as always, um, we're thrilled uh, to celebrate with you today. If you need anything, um, you can find us at voxoc.com. Um, love to do the blessing we always do over you as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And may he give you peace in these days. Amen? Amen. Go in grace. Say hello to somebody. Grab an umbrella. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com participate.